Hey guys, it's just me today. I thought I would read your emails. I thought I would read your emails. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. First is from patron April. She writes, thank you so much for doing this podcast. She's referring to the misophonia or the the uh, fear of sound episode, the patron-only episode. It actually took me two tries to get all the way through listening to it, since thinking about all my triggers was making me feel very upset and irritable. Your talks are always amazing, and we appreciate all the research you do. Keep it up. Thanks, Patron April. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode, and thanks for alerting me to misophonia and the suffering and the torment that people go through regarding that condition. If you're curious about that, become a patron and listen to that episode on misophonia. Here's another patron email. Someone saying, thank you very much, Rebecca and Kirk, for your podcast about miscarriage grief. People around us in general don't understand our loss and our grief regarding our miscarriages. It is indeed important that we talk about it like you did because we feel alone, although there are so many around us going through the same emotions. You also said that sorrow never leaves you, but I've heard it changes with time, right? I just can't imagine feeling this way for the rest of my life. This patron is referring to an episode on miscarriage grief, and I think that's a patron-only episode. I'm not sure. So this patron is saying that they suffered from a miscarriage as well and are suffering from the grief long afterward. And the patron is saying it, it changes with time, right? I just can't imagine feeling this way for the, for the rest of my life. Well, that's a that's a difficult and somewhat depressing question to answer because I'm here to tell you that for the perhaps most significant griefs grieving that we do in our life, it it never ends. I have talked with many people about this and for the most part difficult experiences just never leave us. It, I, the way I think about it is, let's say you witnessed, just to go really far down this road, you witnessed your, your say, your spouse and your children get murdered in front of your face. Well, you wouldn't expect that person, even 50 years later, to say, oh yeah, that old thing that happened, no biggie. You would expect them to be quite upset about it forever. And if we scale back in terms of the, if we can develop a scale of difficulties that we go through, you know, on one end of the spectrum, it say you lost a job that you kind of liked, but didn't really like. Well, that loss perhaps won't impact you for the rest of your life. But there's a lot of uh, losses that are in between there. And miscarriage grief, in my estimation, for some people, particularly if, if it's later in the pregnancy and particularly if, it's, if, the, if the person is uh, particularly attached to the idea of the baby, and particularly if you can never have children again. Some people, their only pregnancies are miscarriages and they never have children and they never adopt. So these, these miscarriages are 
particularly difficult for them because it not only meant the loss of that particular child, but the loss of having children at all. And so that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. Now, does time heal things to some extent? Yes, of course. It's harder, closer to the event than it is further down the road for most situations. But the idea that grief goes away with time is a bit of a misnomer in our culture. And not only does it potentially set people up for disappointment because 20 years down the road you're still suffering, but it also pathologizes suffering. We will look at someone even six months later after a significant loss, and if they're still struggling, we think, well, what's wrong with them? Why, why can't they let it go? Why don't they move on? I'm actually writing a book about grief, and uh, I, I, I'm so busy with being chair of my program that, and with this podcast, frankly, <laughs> that I can't seem to finish this book, and I've I've worked really hard on it and I've done a lot of research. It's not just me blabbing. It's, it's a lot of research, a lot of reading. I've read seemingly every article and every book that's ever written about grief and, and summarize the history of grief therapy in our culture going way back to, I think even before Freud. And so I really want to get that thing out and I just need to figure out when I'm going to do it. The funny thing is, is I started writing it, I think, two years ago. <laughs> and, and uh, oh boy. So anyway, I, 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 in my head, I have the book rattling around. And one of the main theses of the book is how we pathologize pretty much all forms of grief and, and how normal it is to grieve for your entire life about things. And that's just the way life is. If you talk to older people and say, do you still think about the sadness and the sorrow of, of particular losses in your life? My guess is, is if they're being honest, they'll say, absolutely. It still hurts to think about that. And we're talking about all kinds of losses, not just death, but lo loss of a job or loss of a relationship, a divorce, this sort of thing. Even loss of a relationship that wasn't married. Say you had a major relationship in high school. Well, it's possible 20, 40 years later to still have sorrow about that. And it's there's nothing wrong with that. It's normal. Okay, next email. Oh, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't actually an email that I uh, copied here. This is a comment that someone sent me. It's, uh, it's, it's like someone sent me a comment of that someone else wrote. So I... So this person, I don't think when they wrote this ever intended on actually me reading it. But anyway, the person apparently was recommending the podcast Psychology in Seattle to other people. And they wrote, this guy is liberal and can sometimes be annoying, though he still has an interesting point of view. And he's not full out anti-white like many liberals. He'll call out others for bigotry against whites and Christians but he's still annoyingly everyone is equal. Some episodes are interesting. Some are just annoying. <laughs> it's just so funny, you know, to read people's candid uh, thoughts about the podcast and um, how some, some episodes are just annoying. Some are interesting, but you know, some are just annoying. 
and this person is uh, seemingly a, a a white Christian, perhaps, and is not on the liberal side of the fence, so considers me annoying in that way, but also uh, appreciates that sometimes I'll point out that Christians and whites can be treated unfairly sometimes. And uh, so, so there's that. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, in terms of some episodes being annoying, absolutely. I can imagine that I, I listen to podcasts and there are very few podcasts that I can listen to religiously, you know, things like radio lab. I can listen. There's every once in a while, there's an episode where I'm like, eh, I don't really know. And so, and that's a well-produced you know, good creative team sort of uh, podcast. And a lot of the podcast episodes that, that we make here at psychology in Seattle are, are off the top of our head. We haven't really thought them through. We haven't workshopped them. They don't come across very well, or the topic isn't very compelling, obviously to everyone. How could it be? And so, yeah, I appreciate that the podcast can be just annoying sometimes. (laughs) But on the other hand, it's interesting that a seemingly uh, conservative person would find the podcast, at least at times, interesting. That is my that is my hope. I try not to be too personally political. I tend to try to sit outside of the political fights that go on. I wonder what you guys think of me in that way, because... In a lot of ways, if I just really w- was able to to define myself, I would say I was independent. I would say I was neither Democrat or Republican or conservative or liberal. I, I, I have certain stances, as you know, but I don't feel like the Democrats or the Republicans, the politicians anyway, the, the national politicians, embody or fight for the sort of things that I would want them to fight for. Now, having said that, there are local politicians in Seattle that absolutely fight for the things that I want them to fight for. But nationally, it's, it's, it's not really that way. And I'm sure there's some politicians that, that do, but, um, but some, so sometimes I wonder, cause you know, half of the country is Republican and the other half is Democrat. And so, and then I don't know what people outside this country think, but I have always tried not to alienate people because I know that there are certain difficult topics that if you bring up with a group of 100 people, 50 people are going to hate you and the other 50 people are just going to agree with you or all 100 people are going to hate you. I've, I've certainly been on that situation before on this podcast when I say certain things. Here's another person writing in about misophonia. Great topic. Thanks for covering it. I've had this since I was 10 and only got a label for myself on it when I was 20. Never made things any easier, but it let my parents know that I didn't actually hate them. Sucks there's no real concrete treatment, but when I was on anxiety medication for a few months, it went away, and now I'm doing neurofeedback therapy, and it's pretty much gone with no medication. So... This is so end, end of quote. Good to, for you, listener. I am so glad that your misophonia symptoms are reducing over time. You're seeking help, and it's 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 working. And so good for you. 
Again, just so people understand, misophonia is when certain particular sounds, often made by other humans, often made by other humans' mouths, like the smacking of lips or the eating of food or this sort of, or even just breathing can actually trigger a highly distressful reaction in some people with misophonia. And when they suffer from it, they think there's something wrong with them and people don't really understand because it's not a well-known condition. And this listener is saying it helped to be diagnosed when I was younger because my parents were before the diagnosis thinking that I hated them because whenever they made a noise, I would yell at them to stop it. And then after, I mean, I'm just making that up. I'm just reading between the lines. But now that my parents know that this is a, a real thing that other people suffer from, then they realize that I don't hate them. It's just that I have this condition. So thanks for writing in. Okay, here's an email from listener Megan. She says, I'm a fan of your podcast and only just realized that you are a donor of Plymouth Housing Group, where I have been employed for the past three and a half years. I asked Megan to to provide a little snippet of information about the Plymouth Housing Group because it's one of the main charities that we give to at Psychology in Seattle. When you become a patron of the podcast, 20% of your pledge goes toward various charities and the two main ones are Plymouth Housing Group and the Trevor Project. And the Plymouth Housing Group is here in Seattle and it helps people who are are homeless. And Megan describes by saying, we essentially provide low barrier, affordable housing for previously homeless single adults. It is permanent housing with supportive services on site to help support the residents in reaching their goals, which, which often means housing stability. Our main philosophies are harm reduction and housing first. I imagine you have an idea of what that means, but basically we accept people as we are and want to work with each individual to support their needs and make as few barriers as possible when providing housing. Yeah, I do know what that means, Megan. Thanks for writing in. Megan Rowley is a community engagement coordinator, and I'm so glad you're a listener to the podcast and just randomly found out that one of the main uh, organizations we support here is the Plymouth Housing Group. Um, yeah, the the whole idea uh, here regarding harm reduction and housing first is in the past and to some extent still happening, uh, maybe the majority of situations, particularly in other cities, I'm guessing. But anyway, the whole idea was is that a lot of people who are homeless are addicts, are suffering from addiction. And there's various reasons for that. Um, but the most obvious and quite common reason is when you are traumatized as a child or you have a mental illness, one of the ways to help reduce your symptoms of PTSD or of attachment issues or of schizophrenia or of depression or whatever is to abuse substances, is to drink alcohol or use heroin or pop pills or whatever. And so you get this double whammy of being traumatized and treated like crap. And especially if you're LGBTQ or you are 
a uh, you know ethnic minority of some sort, you know you're black or you're uh, Mexican or something, and people will marginalize you. They won't give you jobs, and they'll treat you poorly. And so one thing leads to another, and a small percentage of those people end up homeless, and and they figure out, well, I have to survive, and how am I going to survive psychologically? Well, I can I can numb myself through substances. And sometimes the substances come before the being homeless, but but it's usually because of some trauma or being treated poorly that leads people to uh, highly problematic substance use. So when they uh, come to the door of a social worker and say, please help me, a lot of times what will happen is they will say, well, you have to be sober in order to live in this house that's free for for people like you. You have to be sober. And so you have to follow our rules because we want, we only want to help their, their thinking is we only want to help people who are willing to help themselves. We don't want to house people as they abuse substances because that's quote unquote enabling them. If we give a, a home to a homeless addict, addict, then we're just we're just enabling their use by taking away the consequences to use. This is a, an old, old way of thinking, but still is quite pervasive in our society and also in the clinical, uh, clinical professional clinician community as well. Not only therapists, chemical dependency people, social workers, they will often think this way. And, and society will look at it too and say, so wait, I'm spending my tax dollars just to allow an addict, uh, use his drugs. And we're just paying for him essentially to be able to abuse drugs. So, you know, you can see how, you know, there's, there's a somewhat of a logic to that and people falsely understand how these sorts of things work and they buy into that. Well, harm reduction is, look, let's try to reduce the harm, meaning, Let's not necessarily require the person to be completely sober. Let's try to reduce the harm to themselves and to the society. So if they're a heroin addict, then we can house them and give them chemical dependency services. And if they're still using, we're not going to kick them out of treatment. We're not going to kick them out of this home, but we'll, we'll give them clean needles or will give them money for food so they don't die or will give them treatment even though they're using with the hope that one day when they feel they can, they will be able to stop using. Or while we are getting this person comfortable and uh, and able to talk with a psychiatrist and or a therapist, to help them get treated for their childhood traumas, they're probably going to still be using because they need that as a crutch. So I'm not describing it probably very well, but essentially that's harm reduction. That's the philosophy of harm reduction. It's not abstinence. Uh, It doesn't have a requirement of abstinence. Now, of course, harm reduction proponents are absolutely interested in hoping that their clients and their people become sober eventually and abstain. But, they're more realistic about it. And there's tons of studies that show that when you give an addict who is homeless a home, 
and not necessarily require them to quit, they will eventually quit. Because the whole idea that people just don't understand is no one likes being an addict. There's this, there's this whole idea of like, that guy just is using because he loves to use drugs and alcohol and he just wants to be irresponsible. No, being an addict is terrible. It's very uncomfortable. You never know what's happening in your life. You're very dependent on things that you don't have a lot of control over. And you don't feel productive. You have low self-esteem. And you're ashamed of yourself. So no one wants to be an addict. Very, maybe in the beginning stages of addiction, you'll find people sort of enjoying it. But you ask anyone who's, who is in long-term addiction, they're all going to say, if I could snap my fingers and get rid of the substances, I would. Now, this isn't to say that when people become sober, eventually they don't have a part of them that wants to go back to that lifestyle because there is. I mean, just watch the documentary Amy about Amy Winehouse. You'll, you'll see that depicted in quite sad relief. But the whole idea is, is that when you give someone a home like Plymouth Housing Group does, you're giving them a chance to actually start building a life. They have a, a place where they feel safe. They have a place where they get support. They have a place where they can get a meal. They, have a, they can start building their life back again. And it doesn't cost much to society. And if we just want to break it down into dollars and cents, which I always find to be a little abhorrent because it, it's, it's not like we have to always profit, so to speak, from our decisions. Can't we just make decisions for the benefit of humanity and the benefit of people? But if we're going to make this into a dollars and cents thing, there's also tons of studies that show that when you invest money into housing a homeless person and an addict and you give them wraparound services, there is a certain cost to that, but it actually reduces costs significantly in other arenas like the criminal justice system, the the prison system, because a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless addicts eventually end up in prison because one thing leads to another and you know three strikes you're out or whatever and they're they're in prison for a long time so and that can be very expensive to society or they have to commit crimes in order to get their fix of of meth and there's a lot of costs to that and so if we invest money up front we save a lot of money down the line but again that shouldn't be the only motivation the Really, and for me, the main motivation is compassion for these people. They are suffering, and with a little bit of money from us as a society and from our government and from donors like Microsoft or whoever donates to Plymouth Housing Group, we can actually reduce that human suffering in a very real way. And uh, everyone deserves that. And... Uh, humans deserve our love and our compassion. And I'm a big believer in that. So thanks, Megan Rally, Community Engagement Coordinator of Plymouth Housing Group, for writing in and um, reminding all the listeners about what we do here at Psychology in Seattle. So along those lines, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That is patreon.com. And become a, a, a patron of the podcast because you'll know that 20% of your pledge will be going to these worthy organizations. Also, 
when you when you become a patron, you get access to all of our exclusive episodes, and you can when you become a patron, I'll send you the the special feed information that you can get on your phone. It's it's a different it's a different podcast feed in which all the premium episodes are, and you can listen to them there, or you can just I'll also, I also post them on the Patreon page for patrons uh, in the YouTube form format. So you, you have both of those options. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself be, and, take a, and take care of other people, please. And you could do so by donating to the Plymouth Housing Group or whatever else uh, organization you have in your, in your area. United Way often will help with these sorts of efforts. Please take care of yourself and other people because you and they deserve it.